Well, I need eggs to have a baby. And if I have no eggs left, like how is this going to happen? How is this going to work? That we might look back on and say, did that give people false hope about how it is they could become pregnant? From a monetary point of view, I mean, I really don't think we compensate donors enough for it to be a financial incentive. In this episode of Think Digital Futures, we look at the experiences of women using technology to make a baby and navigating the fertility industry and all its promises. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Having a baby wasn't always at the forefront of Natalie Hart's mind. I was very career-driven in my 30s. Yes, of course, waiting for Mr. Wright, etc. Then I kind of made peace that maybe I would never have children. Until she met the love of her life. Then when I met my fiancé, Glenn, um, you know, I quickly learned that, you know what, I actually wasn't okay with that, that I really did want a family um, of our own. But Natalie's attempt to start a family wasn't as straightforward as she would have hoped. In, like, February or March of... 2016, um, I was sitting in my lounge room floor um, and I had a hot flush. And I knew straight away the way that the hot flush came and left. Uh, Not that I'd ever had a hot flush before, but I knew straight away that it was bad. Whatever that, whatever had just happened, that it, it it was bad. Perimenopause begins several years before menopause, when ovaries gradually begin to make less oestrogen. And further investigations showed that I only had less than 1% left of my eggs left. Perimenopause can start in women's 40s or even 30s, and means they may only have a few years before their ovaries stop releasing eggs entirely. Yeah, just basically when you're told you're perimenopausal, you immediately think, well, I need eggs to have a baby. And if I have no eggs left, like how is this going to happen? How is this going to work? Infertility affects one in six Australian women. Premature menopause, polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis are just some examples of why a woman cannot conceive on her own. You know, I was devastated. I really don't think there's any other word um, that comes to mind in terms of that immediate feeling of, of being told, you you know, you it's going to be hard to have your baby, to get your baby. Natalie decided to get her eggs from another woman. We still want a family. We know we can't have it the traditional way. So what does that mean? What does that look like? And how do we go about achieving that? About 40,000 Australian women turn to assisted reproduction every year. But when Natalie started her search for egg donors in Australia, she found it surprisingly difficult. In Australia, it's difficult to find an egg donor. This is Professor Anita Stumpke from the Faculty of Law at UTS. Anita has been following access to reproductive services from a legal perspective for the past few decades, her work leading to law reform concerning reproductive rights. Anita says there's an egg donor shortage in Australia. Because you can't locate an egg donor through a clinic, you often have to self-recruit, and that means asking families or friends, um, people that you know. 
There's no central registry or body in Australia women can turn to if they're seeking an egg or embryo to become pregnant. Unless you know someone who's younger than you that could donate, that's kind of where you would um, potentially have a sister or maybe a cousin, which I, I didn't really have. Because Natalie couldn't find a donor among her social circle, she jumped online on Facebook groups like Egg Donor Angels, where women seeking donors post ads. But I didn't like the concept of being in these groups and waiting for someone to choose you. It made me feel like I was back at school and I was waiting for someone to pick me for the team. And for those who do donate, for altruistic reasons, usually fall into an older age bracket, which is not what you're after when you're looking for eggs. You know, some of them are at the other end of that age bracket, which is not why we're choosing an egg donor. You know, they've had their family. They might be 35. Um, but we know that egg quality declines after 35. So, so for us, we didn't want that process. Anita says there are many reasons behind the egg donor shortage in Australia. One is that there is no financial incentive. They can be reimbursed for costs of egg donation in terms of medical services, um, but they're not compensated in any other way. Another disincentive is the procedure itself. In terms of um, people deciding to be egg donors in Australia, it's an inconvenient and can be a painful process. Um, it's relatively short, but it does involve um, stimulation to create eggs. Um, it's a half-hour medical procedure. There are often, I think in around 9% of cases, some complications that follow. So for an egg donor, it's rather a big decision to make as well. So Natalie, like many other women in her position, turned overseas. We've decided we want to go to South Africa. You know, what does that journey now look like in order to go and have egg donation? In South Africa, Natalie was able to choose a donor from an agency. And the way the process works is there will be several agencies, egg donation agencies, which we have quite a few here in South Africa. Dr. Liesel Ostasen is a reproduction medicine specialist in Cape Town, South Africa. Once they're on the database, if someone contacts them and asks for um, donors or to see profiles, they'll be able to access some of the profiles of the donors. Once a donor is selected, then at that point, we would actually arrange to medically screen the donor. The Cape Town-based clinic Liesl works at is an appealing option for women in Australia trying to conceive. I would say probably about 30% of our patients come from, from overseas, but then also obviously a very big market that comes from Australia. Most of our patients come out here for sort of eight to 10 days, have a nice holiday and go back home afterwards. Natalie had heard great things about South Africa. I can be there and back in, t in 10 weeks and be pregnant rather than sitting and waiting on a website for a year. And we do have very good law and we have very good regulation of what we are doing. So this is not, you know, just sort of a, you know, a backstreet sort of situation where you go to a country and you get these eggs and everything is very transparent from our side. And it was much cheaper than Australia and a lot of other countries. The actual treatment, you're looking between, I'm going to say, twelve dollars to $13,000. That's for, twelve, say, twelve to fourteen grand. So that's the treatment at the clinic, um, all the IVF cycle for the donor, and choosing because the egg donor agency is a separate business. So you choose your egg donor from the agency, and then they obviously send that lady to the clinic for their testing or psych testing and all that kind of stuff, their meeting, and so you have to pay them. Um, and then just all your medication as well. 
the reports that we had both from the women that we interviewed and also I think on BubHub was that the overseas experience was incredibly much better than what they found with clinics in Australia. Um, And that I think goes back to the previous um, sort of points we were talking about in relation to the affinity and the kindness that they felt they were treated with. There was a more personalised experience. They often had access to the doctor. The doctor Skyped with them. The doctor emailed with them directly. A much more personalised experience than what they found in this country. Another appealing factor is that donors are anonymous. So when you are looking at profiles, you will not see an up-to-date photograph. You will not have a name or any identity um, identifiers to find out who the donor is. And at no point would your child be able to find out who the donor is. So once you've looked at those profiles, the things you would see is baby photographs or a celebrity lookalike, and you get a full description, usually depending on the agency, of their medical background, their likes, their dislikes, why they want to donate, um, and a full description of their physical characteristics. Anonymity does raise ethical questions about the right of the child. In Australia, it's mandatory for a donor to release identifying information to a child conceived as a result of her donation once the child turns 18. But it can be an appealing option for those looking for eggs. But then how does that person play a part in your life? Like, do, do you know what I mean? Are they an auntie? Are they, I think it's different if you know someone, but if it's, if it's a random who's connected and yes, you become friends and all that sort of stuff. It allows the woman who is the recipient of the donated egg to in effect become, I don't want to use the term real mother, but to become the sole genetic slash, if they wish to say that they're genetic, the sole um, parental matron, maternal figure in that child's child's life. So in, in some ways, the, the anonymous donor then drops away. Um, that's one aspect. I think a second aspect is probably that it removes complications. Um, so there's, a, 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 I guess, a, a long-held sort of opinion around having a third party involved in any reproductive process, that they can have rights, they can have says, they can have an involvement or a degree of um, pressure brought to bear in people's lives when they have a children or a family that people may not want. And I think that comes from a very sort of um, heteronuclear family type, you know, perspective of what a family is, um, that it's the the, the two parents and the child and that the third party just drops away. So in some ways, anonymity fits that model very well. It's easy to understand why Australian women are flying overseas for eggs. There's a wider selection of donors, they're younger, anonymous, and it can be cheaper overall. Which begs the question, what do donors get out of it? And in South Africa, um, in particular, one of the main drivers would seem to be compensation. So the compensation offered to, um, in particular, young women to donate their eggs um, seems to be a relatively, um, I guess, a generous amount. And that was something I I think that was replicated across most of the jurisdictions that Australians travel to, with the exception of, for example, the USA. Um, So the Ukraine, um, Greece, um, South Africa, um, many of these countries will compensate donors um, for an amount that donors themselves may see as um, uh, generous. 
Women in both Australia and South Africa get compensated for any medical procedures undertaken to donate their eggs. But where compensation stops and profit begins is blurred. Okay, so in Australia, if you're an egg donor, you can be compensated for the um, payment of the medical service. So, you know, the, the medical procedures in effect. My understanding in South Africa and other countries is that you are in effect paid. Um, so you're paid for your services. So you will, of course, not have to pay for your medical procedures. But on top of that, um, you are given a certain amount of money in the same way that you might if, um, you know, you're employed for services in any... It's, it's not necessarily a payment. It's not necessarily perceived as a payment for the egg as such. Um, it can be perceived as a payment for services. Natalie says her donor received a service payment, a fixed amount of 7,000 rand. Which is about... 700 Australian dollars. So it's not a lot of money for us, but it is a lot of money for them. If you can do uh, an overseas um, IVF cycle using a donated egg for significantly less than you can do in Australia, and that involves travelling to South Africa, accommodation, um, the egg donor, you sort of get an idea in that framework of how small the amount is that egg donors are paid. From a monetary point of view, I mean, I really don't think we compensate donors enough for it to be a financial incentive. It might be the case in other countries that compensate quite heavily, but our compensation is literally for what we feel is rightful for expenses for the donor. Liesl says the donors at her clinic are altruistic. And when you ask them, you often hear a background story. So it might be um, a patient who says, a donor who says, look, my older sister needed to do egg donation and it was quite something to watch her go through it and I want to help someone. I've had other patients say I've had a child and it's such a blessing and it breaks my heart that someone else might not be able to have a child. Um, there's usually some sort of history where they've been touched by infertility in their family or in their surrounds and they're then quite interested in helping. I've even had a patient the other day who was in a, a same-sex female relationship and she said well I'm going to need a sperm donor so why don't I donate my eggs? So there's a lot of insight that comes from the donors. I mean, it's, it's really not often that you, some, you get the impression that someone is here purely for, for a monetary value. In 2006, The Guardian reported that women in Ukraine were being incentivized to donate eggs to make money. Fertility clinics targeted poorer women, offering cash rewards in exchange for eggs. We did see and hear reports of practices from clinics both here and internationally, that one might think were unethical. Um, and that's, um, that's something that's very concerning for people's health and uh, people's consent. So there's a lot um, that's sort of hidden from, I think, the um, travellers from the wealthier countries. They can't really know what's happening and they have to trust and rely upon the information they're given by the clinic. In some cases, the Ukraine-based fertility clinics place the women's health at risk by hyperstimulating women in the hope they produced more eggs per cycle. Hyperstimulation is an issue. Um, in some ways, clinics have a conflict. They're medically providing a service to the egg donor recipient, but they're also medically providing a service, as I understand it, maybe not in all cases, providing a service to the egg donor. So in some ways those duties conflict. So you've got the um, wish and desire to have as many eggs collected from a cycle as possible, 
that then means that your egg donor recipient can have more chances of a successful pregnancy. So there's a conflicting sort of duty that happens there. And I think the other aspect then that's also hidden is what's the medical follow-up for the egg donors? Are they given psychological counselling um, if something goes wrong, you know, further down the track and that we know that that does happen? Um, what sort of provision or, you know, medical support are they given? Liesl says practices at her clinic are safe. Donors are informed of any medical risks and given extensive counselling. They do need to have a very good understanding of what we are doing and that's why we do spend quite a lot of time going through the consent with them but verbally and you know in writing and explaining the process to them. Always a balance where we want to have a nice crop of eggs from a donor but we want it to be done safely so that at no point do we do we pose any risk to the donor in terms of complications. So we always want to get a nice sort of you know acceptable response and you're hoping to get somewhere in the region of about 10 eggs you don't want it to be too excessive and we would take all those eggs fertilize all of those eggs and grow all of those embryos natalie fell pregnant after her first egg donation in south africa you know my husband didn't believe me he made me go and get more tests to do more tests in the afternoon so it's it's an amazing experience you that's what you wish for you want to come back and you you want to be coming back pregnant. She gave birth to a beautiful, blue-eyed, blonde-haired boy named Jensen. But he's, he's beautiful. He's very funny, my son. He uh, cracks me up. <laughs> you know, I, I love when people say to me, oh, he's, he's his mother's son. Like, these people have no idea. They have no idea that he's from Donor Egg. Um, like, that makes me proud. Like, that's my son you're talking about. You have no idea the journey I went through to get him. Oh, it's taken 40 years, blood, sweat and tears. Mm-hmm. Natalie was one of the lucky ones. For many, the quest to make a baby is a gruelling and tiresome one emotionally and financially. Being forced to navigate a complicated and sometimes misleading fertility industry, waiting years for a donor, or not having any luck after multiple medical procedures. You know, I know too many women who have been there and come back and, and had to go three or four times to get their positive. So, you know, I felt very blessed that for me, it worked that first time. There's, again, always a conflict between medical practice that's for profit, and patient treatment. Anita and a team of researchers studied comment threads on an online forum called BubHub, a resource for expectant mothers. So our research involved going through thousands of threads and thousands of discussions. The team were shocked by the marketing tactics of clinics online. There were repeat posters. When we started to isolate those repeat posters and then we looked at the content of their replies, we found that there was a different emphasis about what they were actually discussing and how they were presenting the information. They were sort of emphasising instruction. They weren't talking from experience. Um, They had a working knowledge of the clinic beyond what you'd think was usual. They were posting in the same way as anyone would post. So you wouldn't necessarily pick up on that unless you'd gone through, you know, the the litany of posts that went on before and identified that that they'd done that before. They were steering individuals to particular clinics, um, to particular doctors, even talking about the nursing staff, 
They were steering people towards um, how it was easy to come from the airport to the clinic, um, safety, all sorts of details and particulars that just made the journey so much easier in terms of trying to select where you were going and what you were doing. Um, And every single thread we went on, we could see that this was happening. So an absence of disclosure as to who they were. Mind you, we can't verify it. We didn't contact them to ask them that. And that's really quite disappointing, I think, that you're using a a forum like that for a particular purpose. The marketing tactics of fertility clinics on BubHub points to a much bigger problem in the fertility industry. Women seeking to travel overseas or women seeking information about infertility will often go to internet um, uh, sources like that community forums to find things out. Now, no problem with that at all. I mean, that should be a resource that people should be able to use in all sorts of situations. But what's interesting is that in most jurisdictions in Australia, except perhaps for Victoria and Western Australia, which have some type of um, regulatory body, there's no centralised system that's really up-to-date current for people to get this type of information. So information is so important. And that then means that that gap is filled by clinics. So clinics, commercial operators, um, you know, operating for a profit generally, some listed on the stock exchange in Australia, um, large corporations, some of which are owned by international um, fertility operations as well. Um, They're the ones responsible for giving accurate information. Now, they, of course, are bound by all the guidelines around information that most providers are in Australia. So I'm not necessarily saying that anybody's doing anything wrong. Um, But it's just that idea of having a central source of government information may indeed be valuable. While online forums fill a gap in the availability of official and reliable information, they can also be harmful when serving as a default information service, especially for matters as complex as pregnancy success rates. This idea of misleading information as well, um, it's a feature of this industry. And so that means in Australia as well as internationally. And we've seen this recorded in most jurisdictions. um, And we've seen it happen in this country as well, where, of course, we had a recent, relatively recent reports into how it is that IVF clinics in Australia um, represent their success figures. Um, And success and what that means is a really different concept from an IVF clinic to an individual who's engaging in, um, in trying to create a family. Statistics can mislead people. Success for a clinic might be a successful pregnancy, even if that lasts for a week. Um, But success for a a woman desiring to have a family is a healthy child. Um, So there's there's gradations there. And although then there's also then success statistics reported in relation to cycles. So success after a first cycle, success after 15 cycles, um, which shouldn't happen in Australia, mind you, but it has. Liesel says it should be the duty of fertility clinics to discuss personalised success rates with every patient. Whether they're international, local, doing IVF with their own eggs or even inseminations, whatever you're doing, you should be very upfront because obviously you need to set expectations at the right level. We are very clear that we have excellent success rates when it comes to egg donation, but at no point are we guaranteeing pregnancy. 
What we do know is when you're putting in a genetically normal embryo, your chance of success with that one embryo is roughly about 60 to 65 percent. And we know that embryos created from donor eggs when they are a lot younger have a higher chance of being genetically normal. So we are very clear that we expect good pregnancy rates, but that's still a 35 to 40 percent chance that you won't be pregnant with a transfer. Even the idea of technology as the cure to infertility can be misleading in itself shaping the expectations of infertile women. It fits with the dominant sort of science narrative that science um, can solve and come up with solutions for everything. And, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so we can see that, you know, science is proffered as the solution along with mask wearing and social distancing and those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, this is very much an area where technology's really captured the central focus point for reproduction. So things like fostering or adoption, um, or perhaps having a, you know, what we might think is a a non-Anglo tradition of family where you have an auntie or uncle role that's perhaps just as important as a parenting role. All those forms of what we might think of as family formation have been displaced by this belief, hope, science, myth that, you know, you may become pregnant through the use of technology or that you can delay things and use technology to delay family creation. Delaying motherhood by freezing eggs has become very popular among younger women. There's still a relatively small amount of freezing of eggs happening in Australia, but the jump is going up exponentially. So there's like 30% increases we're seeing in egg freezing. There's a business here. And if you go onto some of the clinic websites um, and the pictures they put on their websites around women who freeze their eggs, um, it's it's beautiful and it's alluring. um, And there's the promise again that it will allow you to forestall, um, you know, family creation. And that said, is there anything wrong with that as such? Not necessarily, as long as you're going into it with your eyes open and fully educated about what it actually is as a, um, as a technology, I think that's, that's fine. But yeah, I, th- I think these things are sort of incremental, aren't they? Um, there's a need or a market, so the market then exploits the need or, you know, services the need, um, and then we continue, we continue on, and I think we're seeing that at the moment. Egg freezing is another example of a new technology with lots of promise. I I mean, I think egg freezing is really experimental still. Um, Look, you could even say, I mean, is IVF experimental? I I don't know. I mean, it's it's all relatively recent. But I just, in the UK, they reported that 18% of women who used their own thawed eggs in IVF treatment had a baby, 18%. So it's still quite, it's quite low in terms of, um, if we call that a success success rate. So... Um, And it's becoming something then that we might look back on and say, did that give people false hope about how it is they could become pregnant? And again, it's that idea, going back to education, I think if people need to know all the information about all their avenues, and egg freezing might be one possible avenue that they choose, not the only avenue. Compounding marketing tactics, misleading statistics, and the promise of new technology, there's also societal pressure to have a baby. One of the things I think is really concerning um, in relation to this area in general are how we just don't unpick our cultural assumptions around family formation. We don't necessarily question whether or not this is something that's right to pressure people into doing. And I use that deliberately. I do think many of the women who travel overseas, many people who are willing, I think, to believe what clinics tell them, um, whether or not the clinic's misleading, they're coming from a concept or a place of um, feeling social and cultural pressure to have a family. So 
there's systemic issues that go along with either misleading information from clinics or perhaps blithely believing statistics and they'll apply to you that uh, sort of go behind I think a lot of people's um, incredibly sometimes painful journeys in relation to creating a family through assisted reproductive technology. A Victorian review of assisted reproduction in 2019 recommended tools for women to help them better understand personalised success rates and make them widely available in clinical practices. Ensuring patients are fully informed as to the likely outcomes, duration and total costs of a proposed treatment. A crucial toolkit heading into the future. So it's increasing, right? Last year, donor sperm went through the roof and I reckon that's probably a lot of single mums having their, having their, um, doing single mum by choice. They don't, they haven't, you know, they're in their thirties, whatever, you know, I've got a lot of single mums that follow me on Instagram as well, but it's, it's not going away. If anything is going to keep increasing, increasing because of, you know, a multitude of reasons. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely going to not slow down, I guess, this way of having your child. A public egg and sperm bank has been flagged by the Victorian government. And so that's really sort of interesting because along with that will come, one would assume, um, information that comes from a central source, information about statistics. Um, there'll be more forms of regulation around it. So I, I think that there's much that can be done to reduce risky practices and to give better information. And that would start with probably having more government involvement or a central point sanctioned by government that can give a more holistic view to people. A public egg and sperm bank may reduce risky practices, informal online donating and reproductive tourism overseas. But the issue of attracting donors remains. There's a big question here about the culture of donation in this country and particularly around donation of body parts. Donation of blood, we have problems. Donation of organs, we have problems. Um, donation of gametes, embryos are problematic. Now that's not just um, systemically. I think there've been structural sort of issues that have created donation problems, um, but it's also a culture. So unpicking a culture whereby people choose not to donate is a really difficult question and I've got no doubt I mean education um, campaigns will help um, but ultimately if we look at what's worked overseas you compensate people. Now I'm not talking here about compensating for the medical service I think that should be a given. Um, I think over and above that there is a need for us to carefully think through whether or not women donating eggs should be compensated um, for what it is they are doing. And if you want to call that being paid or making a profit, I don't really mind. Um, I'm happy to debate that. But I do think that there is a, a culture here that we have to unpick from various angles. Otherwise, we will end up in the same situation we have now with women increasingly travelling overseas because it's increasingly going to be easier. Natalie challenges societal expectations of family and ideas of reproduction in her children's book. I love the first stanza. Let's hear a great story about you and me and how you've extended our family tree. She wrote the book for her soon-to-be four-year-old son, Jensen. I said, oh, look, there's the lovely angel lady who helped mummy with some eggs. And he said, mummy, that's the egg fairy. I was like, yes, that's the egg fairy. 
it's not like I have no information for Jensen. I actually have a lot of information for Jensen um, and I'm normalizing it now so that when he's older, he's not gonna be like, well, where is she? I wanna see her um, because he will just, it, he will understand and accept it, but it's not gonna be this big thing about his conception. Natalie is making her second trip to South Africa in January in the hopes of giving Jensen a sibling. But yeah, I really want a sibling for him. He's ready now. He's asking me, Mummy, I want a sister. They kind of say, oh, you don't know until you're a mum. And it's true. It's just so fulfilling in so many different ways than you would ever imagine. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.